Hi, everyone. You're listening to the podcast of Angel Nears, a Silicon Valley community of startup builders where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Ole Kujikov, and today our guest is Mark Degenkolb. He brings a wealth of experience, 20 years building enterprise software sales teams and delivering revenue growth for both established and startup companies. Today, we're going to talk about sales best practices. But before we get into that, uh, Mark, do you want to do a quick introduction? Mark Degenkolb out of, uh, I like to say, Alpharetta, Georgia. So it's the easiest place, but it's kind of a southeast corner of Canton, Georgia. And it's a pleasure. So th- thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. So today we're talking about sales best practices. Uh, you were with a number of well-known companies throughout your career. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about uh, those companies and those experiences? Yeah, so the interesting part, when I, when I started my enterprise software sales career in 2001, it was one of those things where it was with Quest Software and kind of made my way to, you know, after an acquisition into CA Technologies and then into the startup world. But my best practices are ultimately accumulation of real life experiences at public companies, at private companies, at VC-backed companies, and PE-backed companies. So all four types of companies are different, but at the end of the day, the best practices are consistent and required by all. Um, I ultimately consider these best practices my little black book of do's and don'ts in sales and sales leadership. Um, I have 12 components to it that I'll be going through today. And again, look forward to the opportunity to go into these in more detail. Cool. Me too. So I have the list of 12 in front of me. Do you want to just tell me an overview of like what, what constitutes your sales best practices? Yeah. So from a, I guess a hierarchy perspective, it ultimately starts with the go-to-market strategy and then it kind of dives into the messaging and positioning, the sales methodology, the sales process, then building an executive sales deck that mirrors to it, um, mapping a qualification process around the sales process, and then utilizing data from a forecasting perspective um, because data does not lie, and then building accurate coverage models from a territory perspective and then the accountability down to the rep in sales leadership from a sales territory plan perspective is also critical while mapping what I like to call high value networking into deal reviews and strategy and expectations and how to work inside accounts. Um, And then it kind of ties it back to probably one of the most important components, which is people and people management. And then ultimately the cadence on how you actually work through a a daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and then annual structure from an expectation perspective. Awesome. So a lot there to unpack. Let's start with the go-to-market strategy. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I broke it down into four categories, market analysis, market selection, marketing mix, and then customer acquisition. Mm -hmm. So those are the four key components. I guess we'll start with the market analysis. Yeah, unpack that for our listeners. What's the purpose of this and what do you actually do to analyze the market? Yeah, absolutely. So when you think about market analysis, you're actually trying to determine what the market looks like. Mm -hmm. So I like to start with the customer's needs and what challenges are customers facing today? 
And if you're lucky enough to have insights because you are an expert in the market or field that you're selling into, what challenges will those customers potentially be facing in the future? So what you're trying to do is map the technology and or services to the exact problem or problems faced by your target customers. After that, I like to look at the target markets. So your task in defining your target group is to identify and understand your particular niche so you can dominate it, right? You don't want to enter into something so you can be fifth place. So the better that you understand your target market, the better you'll be able to target them with relevant content, messaging, and then ads. So quick question there. How do you, how do you do that? How do you, how, how do you examine your customer? How have you done that in the past? It depends ultimately where they're at. So there are, there are customers that I've had that have a market present. They've got an identified customer need. It's more fine tuning around personas and targeted personas and what you're driving based on business value and business impact to that individual. There are other situations where I've been a part of PE firms where it's a proven market. It's a proven industry. There is a magic quadrant. It's, it's ultimately a situation where the train has kind of fell off the tracks and you're just ultimately trying to build in those best practices to take advantage of the product, the market and the successes, and then just get them back to where they should be. So it, it truly depends on that answer. Another key thing that I you know, like to, to, to focus on is the market dynamics. And what I mean by that is there are ultimately forces that impact prices and behavior of producers and consumers. And these, these market forces besides price, demand, and supply also imply emotions to drive decisions and influence in the market behaviors and create price signals and things like that. So you're looking for those types of dynamics and the impact that they're going to have on the target market. So, yeah, I'm just trying to imagine being brought in as a sales guy and you're asked to sort of understand the customer. And that is like one challenge of, you know, focus on the customer, understand their needs, understand what they want and what they say they want. And then what they really need. I'm envisioning like a sniper with a blurry scope and he's sort of tuning that thing to really get a clear view. But how do you, how do you study something like dynamics, which is so much less obvious? That's almost like, how do you study the wind uh, as you're holding the, the sniper rifle? Yeah. So there, there, there's another part of the section that we'll go into that'll get down to the actual messaging and targeted again. So you're not sitting there shooting a shotgun approach at the wall. You're truly focusing on the pain of an individual customer and the business impact that your technology or services will provide them. But it is an extremely challenging thing to build a go-to-market strategy. And it's not something that's constant. It's going to stay the exact same way forever. I've been in situations where the dynamics have truly changed based on situations you couldn't control, whether it was the economic downturn in 2008 to what we're experiencing right now with COVID. And then you incorporate competitive challenges where, and you know, you can't predict what's going to happen 
For example, if you're dealing with a conversion from an open source technology into a commercialized product and how many other individuals are fighting for the same type of patents. I mean, these are things that fall into that category. So it's a lot of confusion that's created, but ultimately it's something that if done properly, you can make changes quickly and those go-to-market changes ultimately will drive that overarching theme and where you're going to invest time and resources to make the biggest impact as fast as possible. Not to harp on this too long, we'll, we'll move to market selection in a, in a minute, but how do you crystallize like all that information? I, my guess is that you kind of like start writing stuff down, but do you have a best practice for sort of like, uh, there's a million inputs you could be looking at. How do you how do you keep track of, of, of each and how do you monitor them? How do you view them? How do you focus when there's so many inputs, everything's changing all the time, there's competition on your neck and you're asked to build a strategy? And you haven't even touched on the fact that how are you going to go to market with those collaborators or partners and some companies driving 100% through SaaS-based direct business or partners 100% driven. Like I was at an organization where almost 98% of the business went direct through partners. And so there's an entire channel complexity to it as well. Mm-hmm. It's ultimately, you've got to sit down, you've got to map out current state. And the best way I like to do it is just ultimately getting those right individuals, those executive officers inside a company in a room utilizing a whiteboard and laying out what current state looks like today, identifying where those challenges or potential tweaks can be made on the go-to-market strategy, either to shorten, decrease sales cycles, increase profitability on the opportunities themselves and things like that. So it's, it's collaboration with the right individuals and it's visual representation is what I like to do. Yeah, I love to hear about uh, the whiteboard. That's one of my favorite tools too. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's let's move on to market selection. What is it and how do you do it? Yeah, so with market selection, what you're trying to do is determine whom you want to go after and how. And what I like to do is look at market segmentation first. And this is actually the process of dividing a market into potential customers, meaning groups or segments are based on different characteristics. It could be personas, it could be industries, it could be anything like that. So these segments are created and composed of consumers who will respond similarly to messages where I'll walk into organizations and some of them might have 30 different sales plays they're trying to run but they can't create any kind of consistency in their go-to-market strategy because the likelihood that every single sales rep is going to be able to understand those 30, 40 different sales plays is limited. So you got to figure out how to fine tune it down to a couple, three to five and truly drive consistency in that go-to-market strategy. Mm. Does Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So, so you've analyzed the market and then you need to almost like create buckets for what you're going to target and then that will make some consistency where you know you might have uh half the sales team working on smbs and the other half working on you know bigger bigger kind of clients so you've sort of divided and conquered yep and it could be i had a conversation yesterday with an organization where they're a series a 
company and they've got a goal where they've got to get 20 customers in production, referenceable customers in production by the end of the calendar year to go after that next phase of investment to basically go into hyper growth mode. And right now they've got too many sales plays that are creating a lack of focus on who they should be going after and why. So they're going through an effort right now to fine tune that and just commit to that strategy and drive it. So it's going to change. It's a current driving function or forcing function that they're, they're, they're focused on right now, but it's going to change. It's a living, breathing strategy and those use cases and strategies dependent upon financially where the company's at and what they're trying to achieve will change. Gotcha. Uh, okay. So next, uh, what is marketing mix? How should you do it and why should you do it? So marketing mix is actually the process of understanding how you sell, where you sell it, and ultimately how you sell the product or service. It's actually a model for business, and it was typically surrounded by product, price, place, promotion. It's kind of, it was, it was called four P's. And I remembered this when I was actually, I was first introduced to it when I was the president of the American Marketing Association back at Ohio University when I was in college. And it was something that they presented, but they did it into a services marketing strategy where they took the four P's and turned it into seven. And they extended it by adding people, process, and then physical evidence. Um, so it's a, it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a strategy of being able to look at, I'm not going to go into all of them, but like with product. Product ultimately refers to where you, you want the business offer for sale and it may include product or services. Product designs include the quality, the feature, the benefits, the value, the style, the design, branding, packaging, all of those things that guarantee whether it's life cycles, investments, returns on what you're trying to sell and that's product or service. Um, and then it just kind of ties in the, the sales and marketing components of, again, going back to what you sell, how you sell it, and then ultimately the product or service itself. So am I right in saying it's kind of like looking holistically at how these seven P's sort of touch each other and interact? Yep. Yep. Okay. So the last piece of this go-to-market strategy here is customer acquisition. What's the right way to do customer acquisition? Yeah, so customer acquisition, it's, it's focused around how you gain and then retain customers. And the goal is to reduce the costs of customer acquisition and then leverage your loyal ones from a reference perspective to introductions and uh, you know, net new customer opportunities, things like that. Um, customer acquisition... It's, it's important for businesses of any age and size. It doesn't matter. And being able to systematically kind of attract and convert new customers keeps companies healthy and growing. It keeps the investors happy. But then the conversion of renewals and ensuring that churn doesn't slip into the business is kind of priority number two. And I ultimately, uh, I like to, I like to say, Another way to explain customer acquisition is attract, convert, close, and then delight. So there are multiple ways to position it, but those are kind of the two that I stick to. 
Yeah, I think it's pretty obvious uh, why customer acquisition is so important. I mean, it drives the profitability of the company. Maybe you could tell me about a time where you did customer acquisition really well and you know you were you were proud of that uh, that delight portion. One of the organizations I was at, it was a Series D organization, and mm -hmm. the customer acquisition strategy that they had committed to was a single sales play. And that sales play then extended out into potential different things, but it created confusion and difficulty for the sales team that was in place. And what I mean by that is that if I'm an expert in selling this widget to that person, but then the change in the go-to-market strategy required it to be an enterprise software sales executive that understood how to sell visionary, transformational, multi-stakeholder, complex technology. It's a different salesperson, right? right? And so watching the transition of a company turn from that one thing to this enterprise solution set organization was an awesome transition. And it, it was neat to walk through it, but um, it kind of brings in different things as well, like around just visualizing the customer journey. And when you highlight the stages of the buying prospect and the process and, and, and the consumers and the funnel of how building the buyers and gaining the awareness and the brand and the product and the service to making a decision and becoming a paying customer of your business the whole goal is to simplify the process. So lead generation happens at the top of the funnel, that lead acquisition ha happens in the middle and then the conversion happens at the end. So customer retention in my eyes kind of refers to the whole funnel as a whole. And it's just something that's a continuous fine improvement. But I'll go back to that one example is one where we had a single sales play that then we turned into an enterprise strategy and just some of those complexities, but also the capabilities of what we achieved by doing that simple move and what it did for the revenue growth for the company as well. So once you've built your go-to-market strategy, the next step is messaging and positioning. So what are some best practices for that messaging and positioning? Yeah, so it's it's interesting. So there's often a debate about what positioning is and what it is not. And um, for the purpose of drawing contrast, maybe it's a good way to approach it. Positioning determines how you want your audience to think about your product or service. Um, and then messaging is a set of you know, st specific statements crafted to establish and reinforce your positioning. So what I like to do and how I start this is I say, okay, define the target personas that you sell your product or service to. And this could be architects, DBAs, systems administrators, IT operators, data scientists, lines of business. I don't, I don't care. Just mm -hmm. let's define who those personas are. Mm -hmm. Then you actually need to put yourself in those individual shoes and understand what I like to call a day in a life of. Um, to truly position your value drivers and how you are going to help them with their day-to-day -day job. And this will allow you to articulate the value of the product and service offering to each persona. And then it kind of dovetails into 
it gives you a chance to proactively position yourself both from, again, the positioning but messaging aspect to the competition. One of the most challenging things that I've seen in even my most recent organization that I was with, we had three competitors. And if you looked at every single competitor's website, it said the exact same thing. It just had a different company name. And so all the market does is create confusion from a competitive perspective. So if you're proactively hitting it with positioning and messaging up front, and then we'll go into more things around building that sales deck strategy. But if you position it and you hit them between the teeth quickly so that you're proactively differentiating yourself, it just allows you to, to, to dominate quicker when you're, when, you're, when you're driving those changes. After you execute on that, you want to leverage proof points to validate the business value and provide that credibility. And then you kind of close it down with enablement and continuous education and what I drive there because there's, it goes without saying, I, one of the th first things I try and do is, is I, everyone's heard the term kiss, keep it simple, stupid. And my goal is always to try and focus on creating simple and repeatable messaging, positioning and messaging so that whether it's the janitor of the company to the CEO of the company, they speak the exact same language. When asked, what do you do? Whether it's a product or service. So this becomes even more valuable when you incorporate the benefits of social selling into your marketing efforts as well. So that makes sense? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think one through line I'm seeing already is simplify your messaging. The example you just used from my previous question you used a single sales strategy and you implemented it in sort of a new use case, but it's still like one single sales strategy. Really simplify that down to the basics. And actually by cutting away and making it simple, you're able to sell that to potential buyers and you're also able to get everyone in the company on the same page following like a single messaging. All right, so we've talked about messaging and positioning. Let's move on to sales methodology. What is a sales methodology in general, I guess? Let's, let's say successful sales is not about winging it. <laughs> I've, had, I've had sales reps that just, there's no methodology or strategy or anything. And it's just, they're, they're there and they just go run it. And you'll, you'll see them at times absolutely just crumble. So the, the value of, a, of, of successful selling is about a repeatable process. We already talked about that. And the results in a logical, predictable, or predictable outcome or sale. So a sales methodology, whether it's like solution selling or spin selling or the challenger sale or customer-centric selling or any other, it's like it's an element in the selling process that refers to the framework, a philosophy, or a generic tactic that guides a company through this the sales process, because there is a difference. And I'm going to get into that when we get into the sales process component. But the best sales methodologies turn goals into actionable steps in the sales process that can be measured and monitored. Mm, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, the goal is to sell more. And uh, these methodologies are sort of a system to to achieve that goal. 
I personally have a favorite one, and my favorite's actually customer centric selling. Let's get into it. Can, tell tell me a little bit more. Tell me a little bit more about it. Yeah. So the reason why I enjoy that framework is because it focuses around making sales become a knowledgeable, trusted advisor to the client. And some of the key highlights are focusing on conversing situationally um, about specific problems or challenges a customer's facing instead of just presenting a generic solution to see what sticks, you know, throwing it all against the wall, doing your research, doing all that intelligence that you can actually grab from the web because every organization, whether it's through a 10K or anything that's publicly positioned out there, you know strategically what challenges they're facing and what they're driving towards from an innovation perspective. So it's your job to figure that out. Mm -hmm. It allows you to, it focuses on asking relevant questions instead of offering opinions. Mm -hmm. And I also like to call this don't tell ask. It was actually a training that I was put through at CA Technologies years ago. And what it means is I can tell you whatever I want, but the likelihood that you're going to remember it is slim to none. But if I walked you down a path of two to three questions to make it look like it's your own idea, guess what you're going to remember, right? So it's just neat little things like that that I've built into the components in that methodology that I, I value. Yeah, it's it's one of those things when you uh, tell someone something, it's like in one ear, out the other. But if you ask them a question, they have to actually move the gears in their head, think it through, come up with an answer, and that's much more repeatable. That's much more memorable. One question I have for you about your sales methodology, I guess, do you ever go back and listen to your calls and sort of try to gain insights there that way? Yeah, so it's a, it's a natural kind of continuous education strategy. If you don't have the technology to do it, it uh, obviously you can do the recording on Zoom or whatever it might be, but it's just a great way to not only listen how you position, how you message, how you speak to executive officers, to technologists, to just understanding all the things that we were taught back in the day around not utilizing filler words and everything and anything. So it's a great coaching tool that I push the sales leadership to absolutely drive from a continuous education perspective with their reps. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so important. It's, it's one of those counterintuitive things where you might think like we, we have two options here. We could send the sales guys on a hundred calls a day, if that was possible, <laughs> or we could do, 50 calls and they could listen to another 50. You know, it's probably even less than that. But the the immediate reaction would be to do more calls is better. But I do think the the old adage of like sharpen your axe twice and chop the tree once is uh, what I believe in here. But uh, do, does your experience agree with that? Yeah. W what have you learned? Yeah, we're going to get into that. In, a, in the sales process component, but it's, it's the ability to ensure that you're targeting the right prospect because there's, I'll tell you a story where it was, uh, but it was just, it was interesting where it was an, it was a CEO of a company and the CEO of a comp this company basically said, look, my, my, my team 
they're productive, they're, they're busier than all get out, but the difference between my most successful and then my least successful rep is like way out of whack. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of dove into some of the day, daily activities and routines on what those reps that were extremely successful were doing. And all it did is it highlighted their strategy from a territory perspective because they didn't have differentiation between hunters and farmers in their sales force. And so what it did is it showed that the least successful individuals were the ones most comfortable talking to the existing customer base and not getting their teeth kicked in nine out of 10 times, trying to break down a net new door and a new prospect. And so it's, it's definitely a true statement. Can you break down what what is that sales versus or farmers versus hunters bit? Yeah. So there's a, there's an old adage, which I'll go into in the territory component and how to actually look at that. But the whole point is, is that not all salespeople are created equal. And what I mean by that is, is that you've got to understand and you have to ensure that there's self-awareness between your reps and you to understand their strengths and weaknesses. So what are your top three strengths? What are your top three weaknesses? And if they can't come up with any weaknesses, then you know you have a problem because you want to exploit the strengths and then you want to continuously improve on the weaknesses. Well, there is a difference between what's defined as a hunter and a farmer from a sales perspective. And the hunter is the the thrill of the kill. It's the net new logo acquisition sales rep. It's the individual that loves figuring out how to you know break down doors to get into an account that's never bought a product or service from you. It's just a different mindset. And then you've got a farmer and the farmer is the individual where they just love expanding on the relationships. They take the existing install of a particular line of business, maybe inside an organization, and then they just go wide and deep and continue to leverage and cultivate those relationships from the existing customer base. Got it. Got it. Yeah. A few, few of my friends come to mind uh, hearing about that Hunter persona. Don't say their name. Let's get back to your, uh, your methodology here. We were going to talk about sales process next. So what are, the, what are the key components here of the sales process? There is a difference between a sales process and a sales methodology, and it's important to know the difference. So although they're related, a sales process and methodology are truly two different things. A sales process, I like to say it's concrete set of actions to the sales team and what they need to follow in building and driving and closing business. And then, like I said, the methodology is this framework of how your sales process is to be carried out and how it will be used not only by sales, but every organization inside the company to grow the business. So think as your sales process is the high level map of the steps that the team takes while the methodology are the different ways that the team can approach the sales process. What I like to do in these types of discussions, whether it's where I'm consulting or a new organization that I join, the first thing I do is I like to analyze the current state of the sales process. So walk me through the good, bad, and the ugly. And what I mean by that is, is if you've got 20 customers, walk me through what you would define as your top five customers. And let's look at how long the deal took, the average start to finish, 
I want to understand every single step in trying to determine areas that can be sped up, that can be automated, and most importantly, even potentially be bypassed if it's something that is elongating a sales process. Maybe it's a situation where I had I had a position where for some reason the organization felt like giving out 60 and 90 day proof of concepts where they're going through technical validation efforts when other teams in that same organization were like, no, it's a two week process. And so there was no consistency in trying to set expectations on how to do technical validation events. So once you understand it and then you figure out the repeatable components to it, then you build out what a perfect sales process looks like. So after we go through current state, then I like to lay out the buyer's journey for the targeted personas that you're going after. Mm -hmm. So this is a replication of, again, the perfect sales process and the steps and the actions that were required to close the business. That then allows you to define the prospect's actions and activities that move them from one stage to another in the sales process. And what are they doing in those stages? How many meetings does it take to, if it's a complete transformational evangelistic new type of technology, how many of those meetings to educate, nurture does it take to get where they go? okay, I get it. Now let's validate the technology in my environment. You've got to understand all of those activities to build the stages around it. And then the next critical component to that is it's your sales process. And with your sales process in the stages that you're mapping out to a customer buyer's journey, you have to build in exit criteria. And what I mean by that is it's, it's an opportunity where it's a gate. And it means that you can't, where if you're going to do a technical validation event, you can't get the trial key until you have executive alignment with one of your officers in the company to ensure that before we put feet on the street to validate this technology is going to achieve the business value and business impact that we've presented. I want to make sure, Mr. Executive, that this is a priority for you and that you're going to fund it after we successfully validate the technology environment. It's a gate. And we have to enforce these types of things into the sales process because it's our sales process when you build it. And typically customers try and drive their own process through it, but it's something that you can control. Mm -hmm. But when you build these processes, and this kind of dovetails into the data-driven forecasting strategy, but when you build these stages, the data, again, doesn't doesn't lie. So if I had a rep that had eight out of their 10 forecasted opportunities that were stuck at stage three, and stage three is the technical validation event. But then once we realize that it's stuck there because he's not executing on that gate and he's not getting the executive alignment prior to putting feet on the street to ensure that the executive officer, who by the way, is four levels above the champion that they have committed this transaction is going to close this month for, but the executive officer, it's not even on his radar. He's not even going to fund it. It's not even a 2020 project. So these are things that you can control so you can help people even be more successful once they start utilizing the data. And the final piece to what I drive home on this thing is your CRM technology, something like a Salesforce, 
it's the end all be all. It is the single source of truth. And every single rep owns their own franchise. And the data in that Salesforce instance for their business, if it's crap, their business is crap. But if it's a well-run business, it can be visualized in a well-run way that can proactively give executive officers in the company, like the chief marketing officer, a heads up that, look, pipeline creation in this particular territory is down 25% month over month. Why? And so they can start investing in things to ensure that we're building out a consistent business across the board. So it's, it's, it's a process that when built, it's awesome, not only for helping the reps be successful, but more importantly, providing accurate data from a forecasting perspective as well. Yeah, so uh, a lot there. And I'd like to start with what you just said. You, you, want, you want your CRM to be an accurate, maybe this isn't exactly what you said, but you want your CRM to be accurately representing like the day-to-day of what's going on. So how do we get there? So to, just to synthesize what you went through, Essentially, you need to analyze what you're doing currently. You need to build out the the journey or the stages of the buyer. So from top of the funnel to closing the deal, you need to know, like, you need to establish, like, what are the steps? And then once you establish the steps, it's defining what actions and how you transition from one step to the next. And then another layer of granularity on top of that would be defining the exit criteria. I'm not sure if that means to like define the transitions from each state to the next or to an additional state so that when you're in a state and you take an action, you know exactly what that state maps to next. Is that right? Yes. yes. And it, what it does is that's a great way to represent it because it's literally that gate. And what I like to do in the build out in the functions inside the CRM solution is actually not allow it to go to the next stage without some type of either pre-sales executive or sales executive to actually approve it to go to the next stage because it validates that they've actually got their finger on the pulse of the opportunity. They validated the executive alignment. Like it's a forcing function that when that goes from stage three to stage four, when you run a funnel report to understand what the pipeline looks like for the quarter, You can then go, ah, I know what stage three activities are driven, the forcing function to actually mean that the sales executive leading that region has validated with an executive officer and the company that they did the technical validation effort with has approved it and it's gone to stage four. Then you know the probability of closing that transaction goes up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think think what I'm hearing a lot in this interview is like, really clear and simple and repeatable, maybe not actions, but uh, processes, really simple processes so that when it comes time to do the sale or take steps, you're, you're eliminating thinking, right? You don't want there to be <laughs> thinking around what's next. If I do this, then that, yeah. you know, in a startup, it's, it's, it's all thinking. There's no process at least in the early stages. And so mm-hmm. what you're doing here is you're establishing a process so that thinking is left for the important stuff, which is like talking to the customer and, and analysis, that kind of thing. But you don't want to be thinking when it comes to what the process should be, what steps to take next, that kind of thing. Right. Once you can replicate and build the repeatability of the process, it's all around 
the due diligence and efforts required to truly gain insights around the challenges the customer is facing. And it goes into the next component around the deck piece where it's like positioning out a solution based on features and functions. It's, I just, there, I can, I can tell you a story. There was, there was an opportunity that I walked into where we were going in and two of our competitors were actually in presenting before us because we looked at the check-in book when we got into the, you know, registration decks. And so we saw the two competitors were there and I looked at my sales team for the account and I said, if you even attempt to take out your computer and show a demo of our technology, I will get up and leave. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I'm telling you, this meeting, if we can stay focused on the business and the business impact, we'll be able to position our technology around the value. But I promise you, the other two companies are not doing this. So let's Mm. try this. And we got into this meeting and it was hysterical because it was totally true. They, once we started peeling back layer after layer after layer, with regards to the business service that they were having challenges with regards to the uptime and availability of the service, we spent all the time nailing down the challenges of the last code release to the application and how many people it impacted to the financial clawbacks that they had in the SLA agreements with their customers. And we're seeing they're going, we can only charge you list price and list prices like one tenth of what you just told us from a revenue loss perspective that you've achieved. And it's just, it's just a different way of thinking, but it, uh, it's, it's fun stuff. Once you get people outside of the fact of not presenting on features and functions and focusing on business value and business impact. Right. I mean, once you start hearing their problems and having a conversation, those sales, I mean, that sale sounds like it kind of made itself. Some solid strategy, solid strategy there. (laughs) 